All right, I feel like a rapper now if I'm going to preach with a mic in my hand. I'm not going to rap, that's for sure. Um, you know, I'll just say this. The, the, I wonder if the one l- phrase in that song we just sang that was maybe the hardest for you to sing or sing along with is, there's purpose in your plan. That's not easy to say uh, for a lot of us uh, at a lot of times in our life. It's true. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. God promises that, but it doesn't always feel that way. And the whole point of the last line in that psalm is God saying, I can bring honey from a rock means from situations that you feel like there can't be purpose in this plan. God can. And this scene here in the Gospel of Luke this morning absolutely speaks to this. Both, both people Jesus encounter uh, in this scene are, are, are struggling with God's plan and purpose. And Jesus shows himself powerful uh, over each of their situations and to us as well. So turn to chapter uh, 8 of Luke. We're in the very last scene, Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 40 through 56. But before we read it, I want to start, you know, we read from the the Nicene Creed this morning. I want us to think about another historical document, a collection of Christian teaching called the Heidelberg Catechism. You might hear the word catechism and check out because in junior high you had to go through catechism or something. But don't check out. It's a beautiful document. It was written in 1563 in what is now Germany. And it was written both as a confessional document, so a collection of, of what we believe uh, is the faith handed down to us by the apostles. But it's written as a teaching tool. It's written with questions and answers, 129 of them, to help us learn and, and memorize these truths. And they, they talk about the most important things that we can think about. The whole first section is man's misery. So what's the honest, unvarnished truth about sin and the condition of this world and ourselves because of it. Then the second section is uh, man's deliverance. What has God done to fix our problem and to overcome uh, the brokenness that has come into the world because of our sin? And then the final section are questions about man's response in light of this gracious God who's who's solved uh, our, our sin problem. How do we then respond and get in on this? It's a wonderful document, but I want us to just think of the first question here this morning as we begin. It's arguably the most important and practical question that we can ask ourselves as Christians living in a hard, fallen world. And the question, if you haven't ever read this before, is what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort? The key word in that question is the word only. Because it's not just asking, what are some things that comfort you in life? You know, like a hot meal or a hug from someone. Those are good. But what is your only comfort? What is your ultimate comfort? It's asking, what comfort is strong enough to uphold you no matter what life throws at you? And beyond that, what comfort is strong enough to enable you to face death even unafraid? We need an answer to that question. Here's the answer. It's beautiful. Here's the answer. What is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is this such a comfort? It goes on. Because he's paid fully for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a, a, an incredible answer, isn't it? Jesus is that faithful Savior. Jesus has secured and guarantees us every word of promise in that answer to that question. He's not a second-rate, um, limited Savior with a small s, limited jurisdiction. He can, he can deal with some of our problems, and he can give us some comfort. No, the Bible says Jesus is the God of all comfort. There is nothing we will face which Jesus cannot be our comfort in. And this is why Luke wrote his gospel. Do you remember the very beginning of his gospel? He said, I wrote this so that you might have certainty about the things you've been taught. The reason he wants us to be certain about Jesus is because if we're not certain about Jesus, then we don't have this comfort. But if we're certain that the Jesus that he's telling us about in his gospel is real and true, every word of it, then we can cling to that as our comfort no matter what comes. So that's what we're here for, Luke 8. You know, a few weeks back, Moyer really helpfully uh, pointed out that, that in this entire section of Luke, tra uh, tracking Jesus through his ministry before he goes to Jerusalem and the cross, one central question is being asked through all of Jesus' words and works, and that is, do you know who I am? As Jesus teaches with unique authority, unlike any other scribe, uh, teacher, the question is, do you know who I am? As he calms wind and waves and he claims the divine right to forgive sins, and as he shows one, one, one by one with one person at a time that he is sovereign over disease and disability and even the spiritual realm, demons and death itself, the question is, do you see who I am? Do you know who I am? And we're watching the disciples and the crowds and, and religious leaders all making guesses. Some of them are getting warmer and others are getting much colder. And I think there's actually a second question that parallels that question through this whole section of Luke. So the first question is, do you know who I am? But the second question, in fact, the second question, your answer to it, I think, ensures that you really understand your answer to the first one. And it's, do you trust me? So he's saying, do you see who I am? Do you, do you know who I am? But right alongside that, then, do you trust me? That's why G he rebukes his disciples in the boat a few, chap a few sections back, right? When the storm hits and they say, Master, we're perishing. And he says, where's your faith? Do you know who I am? And in light of who I am, do you trust me? Eric pointed out last week, you can get an A-plus on that first question and utterly fail the second. The demons are absolutely clear that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And they despise him. And so can you. So the question for us this morning is, do you know Jesus and do you trust him? Is he your only comfort in life and death? If he's not, I've been praying this week, even if you're watching in the live stream, and he's not, that this morning you would see Jesus in this scene and you'd be persuaded that he is absolutely able to be your comfort in life and death. And he wants to be. He's eager to be. He's inviting you 
to receive him as that. And if he is, that we would just be strengthened in our confidence to face whatever we're facing today. So now let's read Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. 40. over in Psalm 81. I got to get back. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at his feet, he implored Jesus to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, in other words, along with Jairus to to come and help, the the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately... Her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she wasn't hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat and her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened yeah good luck keeping the lid on that story right every time i read this i'm like there's no way that that kept that that was a secret so verse 40 the context is jesus has just come back across the Sea of Galilee. He'd been over in Gentile territory and uh, and not so politely asked to leave by the Gerasenes there after he delivers this man from demons. He's now back on the Jewish side and he's still very popular. The crowds have been waiting for him to return and continue to teach and continue to heal. And just as he's about to get started, he's interrupted. In fact, if you think about it, this entire scene, the way it plays out, is like a series of interruptions. It's one interruption after another. The first one is Jesus is about to start ministering, and Jairus comes, this desperate father pleading with Jesus to to save his daughter who's on the brink of death. 
And no sooner is Jesus headed that way that Jesus and Jairus are interrupted by this woman who's helpless, who touches Jesus and is healed. And no sooner is she healed that they get news that the daughter's died, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to interrupt another funeral. So three interruptions. Let's, let's kind of work through them in those chunks. Number one, Jesus is interrupted by this desperate father and his plea. Verse 41 tells us all we need to know about this father. He was a known man. He can be named Jairus. Everyone in this crowd probably would have known who he was because he was important. He was powerful. He was a synagogue leader, maybe the synagogue leader. Synagogue leaders weren't paid clergy like a priest, but they were religious leaders. They were in, in charge of overseeing the weekly Sabbath worship at a synagogue, a local synagogue, so to care for the building and the scrolls there and to arrange the, for the worship, the readings and the prayers and the teaching. So he would have been influential and, and, and probably well-to-do financially and respected. But he's also desperate. We first encounter him, and he's on the ground in front of Jesus at his feet in the middle of a crowd, begging him to come help. This isn't the sort of man that we would expect to be in this position at Jesus' feet. But he's out of options. Verse 20, 42 tells us why he's so desperate. His only daughter, who's 12 years old, is dying. As a girl dad, I am immediately riveted here. <laughs> to the story. I can absolutely imagine the sense of panic and fear. Twelve years is going to come up again in the story a little later with the woman, but here, twelve years is to highlight how short a life this girl has lived so far. She's just entering into adulthood. Her whole life is before her, and she's about to die. And she's Jairus' only daughter, which just intensifies the tragedy of this. So here he is for all of his status and his influence and his power. He's utterly powerless to prevent the death of his little girl. He's learning right now that his status, influence, and power are not ultimately a comfort in life and death. They're helpful, but they can't solve this problem. So I want to, in that way, we all, all are in the same boat as Jairus this morning. Death comes for us all. It's universal. Every funeral that you attend reminds us that we will not escape it unless Jesus returns first. So here's this man. Death's come for his only daughter. There's nothing he can do, and he's at the end of himself, but he's obviously heard about Jesus, and he's heard about the things that Jesus can do. And so he's there in desperate faith at the feet of Jesus. I want to ask us here, when life brings you to the end of yourself, brings you to that point where you have no other options and you, you realize it. Does that draw you to Jesus, drive you to him, or does it drive you away from him? Because God wants these things to drive us toward him in reliance and trust. God in his providence has purpose in his plan. God in his providence has reasons for trials even and sufferings and afflictions that he leads us into in life. Now, most of the time, like Job in the Old Testament, God does not spell out for us an explanation of all of his purposes. Wouldn't that be nice? In fact, like Job, 
often we're left to, to, to leave that to God. God is God. I am not. But there's at least one purpose in every trial and affliction that you and I will face that we can be certain of, and that is that it is at very least to drive us to God in dependence, to make us rely upon him. Paul, the apostle, many times as a missionary, was brought to the end of himself probably far more times than, than are recorded in Acts and in his letters. But one of them is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Can you put this slide up? In 2 Corinthians 1, he tells the Corinthians about a time that he faced an affliction that was the worst. He says, I want you to know, we want you to know, to not be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But that, the affliction that made him feel like this was the sentence of death, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God frequently brings us to the end of ourselves so that at the end of ourselves we'll discover that he is the God of all comfort. He is the God of all power. He is the God who delivers. He is the God who hears prayer and upholds us. So Paul didn't know all the reasons that God had for this affliction, but he did know that it was to make them rely upon God, which presumably they did, because he goes on to say he delivered us from such a deadly peril. So in that case, it wasn't a sentence of death, and he, and he brought them out of it, and, and it created future forward-looking hope. He says, and Paul says, so he, he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. He will deliver us again. And, and, and that's not rose-colored glasses, if you know Paul, because in Philippians, he understood that to live is Christ and to die is gain, so God could deliver him again in future afflictions through life or through death. But the point is, the affliction was to make him rely, to, 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 to lead him into active trust in God. To use a phrase Christians used to use back in older generations, it was in th that last song we sang this morning, um, Paul and his companions in that moment of affliction proved God. This last week, as I was thinking about these things, I'd seen Fred Sanders uh, post on Twitter this little comment about how the definition of the word prove has changed these days. You can take that slide down. I'm not going to come back to that. Thank you, Rob. But he, he wrote this. He said, the chief meaning of the word prove now typically is to demonstrate or establish something is certain. But the older sense of it was to learn by personal experience, like the hymn, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. I don't know if you've maybe ever sung that hymn and felt weird about that line. Like, it sounds like we're bragging, like, I'm, I'm proving Jesus, like, I, I'm, you know, but you're not bragging about yourself, you're bragging about Jesus. When you say, in this sense, I've proved him over and over, what you're saying is I've proved him, I've learned by personal experience through active trust that Jesus truly is my only comfort in life and death. I couldn't write it down fast enough, but the, the little bridge of that last song that we just sang works in that way. It's, it trades lines of active trust, Jesus showing himself faithful. I keep praising, he keeps proving, or I keep, I can't remember what they all were, I'll look them up, second service will get to look at them. But that's what the idea that we, 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 we come to him in desperate active trust, and he proves himself faithful again and again and again, and in that way we prove him over and over. And Jairus and this woman here in this scene are about to prove Jesus in that way. They're going to actively learn, they're going to learn through active trust 
that he's faithful and powerful. So back to Jairus. I can feel his toe tapping here. Let's get going. Jesus agrees to come with him. And so as Jesus went, the people pressed in on him. So just as his hope was beginning to lift, the crowds are so tight that they, they're, they're being slowed down and they, they can't get there. Which allows then time for this second interruption. And this woman, this desperate woman, reaches out and touches Jesus. Verse 43. Who is this woman? Well, unlike Jairus, she's unknown. We don't even get her name. No one thinks before she leaves the scene to say, hey, by the way, what was your name? She's unknown. And she's powerless, unlike Jairus. Every descriptive phrase of her here just sort of adds a layer to her suffering and her helplessness. So she's suffered physically. She's had a bleeding condition, no doubt that it was accompanied by physical pain for 12 years. So as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has suffered with this condition. I want us to feel the length of that just for a minute. Take a minute and try to think, where were you 12 years ago? This isn't quite 12 years ago, but as I thought about that, I thought 11 years ago, Betsy and I were in Louisville, Kentucky for a three-month sabbatical with Lily and Levi. We didn't even have Elijah yet, who's now eight. And this last fall, as Facebook memories would pop up every day, it not only reminded me of how beautiful Louisville, Kentucky is in the fall, made me want to go back, but I see these pictures of Lily and Levi, who were kindergarten and preschool age at that time, and Lily's driving now with her driver's license, and a, a lot of time has gone by. A lot has happened between that sabbatical and today, and as I sort of take that and then put this on the story and say, that's how long this woman has suffered but not just physically, socially. Her condition, being bleeding as a Jewish woman, would have rendered her perpetually unclean, ceremonially unclean, according to the law of Moses. She would have needed to keep a physical distance from all people, lest she defile them and make them ceremonially unclean. So maybe this woman for 12 years has not been hugged. Unlike Jairus, who's at the center of the religious community life, leading it, she's been out on the outskirts, unable to, to be part of it. She's been cut off. And she suffered financially, it says. She had spent all her living on physicians, and none could help. In fact, Mark's account of this adds the little detail that after she had spent everything she had, she'd actually suffered much at the hands of doctors and was worse off than in the beginning, it's not hard to imagine, first century medical practice, 12 years of that. And she, I'm sure, suffered emotionally through all this. So this woman is the de definition of helpless. But like Jairus, she also has faith. She also believes Jesus has the power to heal what no one else could. And so she approaches him with active trust. Another contrast here, unlike Jairus who approaches from the front publicly and boldly crying out, interrupting everything, stopping everything to ask for Jesus' help, this woman approaches Jesus secretly and timidly from behind. She's hoping to just slip in and slip out and be healed. She comes up behind him and touches just the fringe of his garment. She doesn't want him to know that this touch had happened. 
because she knows she's unclean. She knows she shouldn't be anywhere near this crowd, much less in the middle of it where everyone's pressed together and everyone's touching Jesus. She's risking everything being to, to be exposed for what she's about to do here. So she sneaks in to touch Jesus. I wonder if this woman, while she had faith that Jesus could heal her, underestimated his compassion. Thinking something like, I believe this, this man is able to heal me, but I'm not so sure she wa he wants to be touched by me. And she's wrong. Two things immediately happen, verse 44 and 45. She touches the fringe of his garment, she's totally healed, and Jesus totally knows it happened. Immediately, it says, her bleeding ceased, and immediately, Jesus turns around and said, who touched me? Can you imagine her panic in this moment? Because it says, all denied it. So I, you picture the scene. Everyone's pressed in. Everyone's fixed on Jesus. So maybe this woman is, has her, you know, head covered in some way, so she's not recognized as this unclean woman from the town. But all of a sudden, everyone starts looking around. Hey, who touched, who, who touched him? Who touched him? And everyone's denying it. And it's, 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 the fear is sinking in. I'm, I'm not going to be able to hide this. I'm going to be exposed. And Peter <laughs> always says the funny thing, Master, this is my paraphrase, who isn't touching you right now? <laughs> Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? But he says, no, I'm not just talking about physical contact. A lot of people are touching me right now. But only one person was just healed because of that touch. I want to know who that is. He wasn't content to let this end as an impersonal power encounter for this woman. Think about it. Jesus knew so someone was just healed through touch probably even knew it was the woman. He could have just smiled to himself and thought, bless your heart, good for you. Respected her privacy and, allow, and allowed her to slip out unexposed. But he's not content leaving it that way. He wants her to know, and the crowd apparently, why she had just been healed, that he's not just some walking talisman or lucky rabbit's foot that can be rubbed for a blessing superstitiously. He's a savior. He's a person who's powerful and compassionate and approachable. Who wants us to be confident that in all of our uncleanness and shame, we can come to him and touch him and be healed by him. It's incredible. This woman is afraid that her uncleanness is going to defile Jesus, but it's just the opposite. His, uh, his cleanness makes her well. And removes her shame, and he wants everyone there to know it. He wants to restore her back into fellowship and the worship, uh, fellowship of the community. She's afraid that being exposed for touching Jesus is going to get her condemned publicly. But it's just the opposite. Jesus commends her faith in front of everybody. He exposes it in front of everybody and then beautifully commends it. Look at verse 47. When the woman saw she wasn't hidden... She came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So her answer to the why question would have been a profession of faith. Why did you come touch him? I believed he could heal what no one else could. 
And her answer to the how question was her testifying to how in that moment she had proved him in that older sense. She had learned through that touch and that healing how true her belief was that Jesus alone could heal her. And Jesus commends it. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. It could be translated, go in peace. This beautiful term of endearment to this poor, lonely woman, probably starved for attention, and he smiles at her, no doubt, and says, daughter. Jairus' daughter is not the only daughter in Israel that Jesus' heart broke for. And he wants her to know as she leaves these two things, your faith has made you well or saved you, and go in peace. Let's not misunderstand that first phrase, your faith has made you well. That does not mean her faith earned the healing. It doesn't mean that she was the one worthy person in the crowd. Everyone else was touching, but her touch earned a healing. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean her faith contributed to the healing or helped accomplish the healing. Her faith simply got her to Jesus, whose power healed her. That's how faith works. That, that's how it always is with faith. Coming to God through Christ in faith. Doesn't merit, doesn't accomplish, but it gets us to Jesus. It puts us in the posture to receive what he offers freely as a gift. And I love this. Her faith might have been timid, but it got her to Jesus. And Jesus made her well. Timid faith is faith. Timid faith is active trust, even if it's timid. Got her to Jesus, and Jesus made her well. Those words should sound familiar to us. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Do you remember where we've heard that in the Gospel of Luke so far? Just one chapter back, that woman that everyone in her town knew as the sinner who broke into the lunch and got at Jesus' feet and wept and wiped her, his feet with her, her hair and tears. And Jesus pointed out again, commended her faith and said, this display of love that you're, look, you're looking at and actually judging some of you at the table is evidence that she gets it. She knows how much she has been forgiven. And he says to that woman, your faith has made you well or saved you. Go in peace. And here he is with this woman. He also wants this dear woman to know that as she walks away, her relationship with God is one of peace. Remember Luke 2, what the, the kind of peace the angels announced that Jesus was coming to bring? Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So Jesus wants this precious daughter of Israel to know as she goes away, she's among those with whom God is pleased. And it's her faith that is so pleasing, her utter dependence and active trust in him. Can you relate to this woman's faith? The timid part of it, I mean. Can you relate to feeling unashamed or unworthy or unwelcome with Jesus? Maybe it's because of things that you've done in your past that you just can't purge from your memory and you can't forgive yourself for. Maybe it's because of things that you're doing right now, ways you're living right now, that you at least know that's unacceptable. That's counter to what God's called me to. And it keeps you, your faith, timid. Or maybe it's because of things that have been done to you in your past that you had no control over, and it's created a shame that you shouldn't bear. But that shame nevertheless makes you timid in approaching Jesus. This story right here is so encouraging. It tells you 
Don't underestimate Jesus' compassion. Bring your need to Jesus this morning. Bring your fears this morning. Bring your shame this morning. Bring your aches. And like this woman, he will not turn away your timid faith. He'll commend it, and he'll help. Okay, back to Jairus. Again, can't you feel him waiting through this whole story? This is all going down, verse 49-50. Meanwhile, Jairus' daughter is dying. Can you imagine what's going through his head as Jesus is sidetracked, stops, asked who touched me, waits as people are denying it, how long, however long it took the woman to finally raise her hand, and then asks her to testify to what just happened, and then she's explaining it, and then Jesus is talking, and the whole time he must be thinking, my daughter is dying. <laughs> Let's go. This woman's been sick for 12 years. My daughter is not going to make it. Let me ask you a quick, quick interruption question. Again. One more interruption. Do you trust Jesus when he is not operating according to your preferred timeline? Do you trust Jesus when it feels like he doesn't share your urgency? Whether it's the how long, Lord, variety of this woman who no doubt had prayed and prayed and prayed and, and felt like the heavens were, were, were sealed to her, or whether it's the urgent, fearful variety of this father who's just watching the worst-case scenario play out before his eyes. Can you trust him with timid faith even then? Well, before they can even get a move on, the terrible news arrives. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. So the healing of this woman has meant the death of his daughter. It's his worst nightmare. He had believed that Jesus could prevent this from happening, but he's not so sure that Jesus can reverse this. That's what the person from his household at least believes when he says, don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Implication is, this has just gone above this teacher's pay grade. He can't fix this problem. In my paraphrase, Jesus says, oh, no trouble. <laughs> Don't fear, he says to Jairus, just believe, and she will be well. And we get this final interruption. Jesus shows up and interrupts another funeral with a powerful word. This is the moment of truth in this scene here for Jairus. He had had faith, but right now, our question is, is he still going to trust Jesus now? And by the time they arrive, Mourning has already happened. Pe people are weeping and wailing, and the funeral is beginning. And Jesus says, don't weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. He knew that she was dead. He didn't think she was just sleeping. But to Jesus, death is no more powerful than sleep, as we've already seen with the widow's son. So everyone else is saying on one hand to Jairus, don't bother Jesus anymore, it's too late. Jesus looks him in the eye and says, don't fear, just believe. Whose word will he trust? Will his answer to the first question, do you know who I am, lead him to then trust Jesus for his word? And he does, apparently, because he and his wife go inside with Jesus and the three disciples. And Jesus interrupts death, verse 54. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Like we saw with the widow's son, Jesus has the authority that extends beyond the grave. Jesus can overrule death. Only God can do that. And I love the tender detail 
Jesus makes sure someone gets her a snack. I mean, she's been through quite a bit, as you can imagine. So in this moment of truth, Jairus, who has imperfect faith, but faith nevertheless, actively trusts Jesus, his word. When Jesus said, all will be well, she will be well, all right, here we go. Walked in the house. So what about us? As we all are going to face, are facing sickness, even death, Jesus says those first two phrases to each of us, do not fear, only believe. Now here's where I want us to be clear. That last phrase he has not said specifically to all of us, and she will be well. In fact, much harm has come from verses like this, spoken specifically in a moment to a person like Jairus, blowing that up to be a universal promise to all of God's children everywhere in any dire situation. And the harm comes when um, faith does not follow, isn't followed with wellness, but tragedy. And the thought is, I must not have believed enough. It must be a failure on the part of my faith. But as I, I read in one commentary, Daryl Bach this week said, the, the woman was healed because she had faith, not because she had enough faith. So we have not been given the same promise to Jairus. Don't fear, only believe. Healing will happen. It can. But Jesus has made a guarantee to everyone who's in Christ, everyone who is, is, tr is trusted in him, that in an eternal and ultimate sense, we absolutely will be well. Even death can't separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, it can actually only speed you into the fullness of it. Isn't that amazing? And until that day, like we read in the, in the catechism, he preserves you in such a way that without the will of your heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from your head. Indeed, all things must work together for your salvation. So the world may laugh and say, do you really believe all that? Do you? Do you trust Jesus for that? Is he your only comfort in life and in death? Here's how I want to close. I want to commend some faith here. Two examples of faith. Two people whose faith I want to imitate, I want us to imitate. The first is Melody Litzaw, who's here this morning. And the second is Dave Koontz, who at this moment is in the presence of Jesus. I want to read you some words from each of these two dear saints if you don't know Melody, she suffers from a rare form of muscular dystrophy that's degenerative. And she bravely blogs about it on a blog called Counting Our Blessings. Honestly, in an unvarnished way, talks and encourages others who are suffering in the midst of struggling herself. But I don't want to talk about her blog. A few weeks back, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I, I spotted one day something that she'd posted on an Instagram story. And it was about how at times people will, with good intentions, ask her if she's seen any improvement in her condition. And I was struck by how she said, she responds. She said, typically, this is my response. Physically, no, but spiritually, yes. The Lord is continually working on my heart, growing my dependence on him as I lean into him for his strength and his leading. The Lord truly does draw near to the brokenhearted. That's how someone who has proved Jesus over and over speaks, testifies. The Lord does draw near to the brokenhearted. I have been brokenhearted. He has drawn near to me again and again. 
She went on. She said, I think sometimes we miss it because we're expecting the Lord to take our hard completely away. We have expectations of what we think it looks like for the Lord to draw near to us. However, the Lord always draws near to us in ways that are good for us. And sometimes that means not taking the difficulty away, but helping us walk through it. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 8 through 18, she says. When we, uh, we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Grace, let's imitate that faith. Is your only comfort in life and death, Jesus. Second example, Dave Kuntz. If you weren't at his memorial service, it was glorious. His wife Karen shared a beautiful tribute to his life and faith and the husband and father and grandfather and, and, and believer that he was. I asked her to send me the entire document so I could read through it again. But one little part in particular, I think I've thought about every day since the memorial service. It's become for me, I think, a filter through which I want to run every trial and suffering I face. Because this is extraordinary. It was a note that he wrote to Karen in April of 2019 at a point where it was clear, short of a miracle, cancer was going to take his life. I mean, it wa he was not going to be cured. And Karen said she was really struggling in this moment. And one morning she woke up and David had written this note for her. Dearest Karen, understand this. My illness is not about others. I am not just a casualty in some cosmic movement of God's will. I think, in other words, God's not just doing bigger things and I'm just sort of a, a sad byproduct of that. So I'm going to suffer, but it's going to work good for others. He says, no, I'm not a... A casualty. This is a gift from God. Who talks like that? This is a gift from God, and it's an opportunity to learn things. I can only learn this way, he says. To learn to long for what is to come rather than to cling to those things that lie behind. And you've been invited to share in my journey. So I have to trust that in some way you will also share in the blessings as God intends that you will see there is purpose in his good plan. May the Lord help us to imitate this faith on our darkest days. For some of us, we're in those. For others of us, they're coming. We don't know when. So what about you, Grace, as we finish? What trials and afflictions has the Lord led you into right now, big or small? Are you able this morning to consider, to recognize them, like Dave, as opportunities to learn things you can only learn this way, to learn by experience and prove how faithful your Savior is through active trust. That does not mean you can't simultaneously grieve and groan and pray, why, Lord? Active trust does not require a stiff upper lip. The Psalms make sure we know that. We have the, the right to ac exercise active trust with groaning. But whatever you're facing this morning, Jesus is saying, don't fear, only believe. Do you know who I am? You can trust me. 
So before we sing, here's how I'd like to close. Would you stand? We're going to end here with Heidelberg Catechism question number one, and we're all going to declare this as our declaration of active trust as we go. So Grace, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall on my head from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's our prayer. Jesus, Jesus, how we trust you. How we have proved you over and over. Oh, for grace to trust you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you.